Good morning. As you can tell, Pastor is not here. And just for future reference, nine times out of ten, if he's not here, he's not doing well. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Uh, he had a really bad pain spike on Friday. He was finishing his training with Sam. Uh, Sam tried to call 911. Dad said no. Um, and because he had Frontier coming to install Internet that day. You know, priorities, priorities. Um, so he's uh, he is actually at home this morning. He has a little. He had a little bit of some of his more heavy duty pain meds he's taking, uh, and those kind of knock him out. He's he's basically just been putting off going anywhere over the weekend, even though he probably should have, because tomorrow morning is his appointment at Mass General. So if you'd be praying for that, that's that's a big one. This is a weird prayer request. We're praying that he has one of those spikes while he's there. Um, that's a big hospital, it's a good hospital, and I'm praying that they'll admit him and find an answer in some point of that process. Also save him from driving home in a snowstorm, and that's my second one. Pray for a snow day on Tuesday. Um, anybody who's worked in any school, we haven't used any this year, and we want one badly. We love your kids but not that much. Um, but please be in prayer for, for Pastor um, uh, over the next day or so. He's, he's not feeling well. The other one, it, he, I know he's been on the prayer list and we've been trying to keep you updated. Uh, Bill Edwards started developing some breathing issues in the last 24 hours. Um, there's a possibility, I don't know a lot of details other than that, that he may have to move him back into ICU due to those issues. Um, they're not necessarily out of the ordinary or not to necessarily be expected. He just had a double lung transplant plant. Breathing issues kind of come with the, the game there. Um, but just be in prayer for him and for Mrs. Edwards there. Um, and pray that God will do something and help those issues to go away. The other one that's been on our list now for almost eight weeks is Nick Bender. Um, Nick has been moved into a rehab facility. And kind of like my dad, he's not a very good patient. Um, people with long-term illnesses typically are not. Um, so he is not, uh, he's not following orders. Yeah, I know. I know, Donna. Parenting our parents is really fun. You can't wave your arms around and not expect somebody to see that. Uh, but please be in prayer for Nick. The, the fact that he is in a, a rehab facility gives some hope that he may be able to go home fairly soon. But it's been almost eight, I believe as of Tuesday, it's been eight weeks that he's been out. So a um, lot of things to pray about. Uh, how many of you have something you need to pray about? It's almost everybody every time. It just we, We're going to take a moment here at the very beginning. We're just going to pray and then we'll jump into some announcements. Dear Lord, thank you for allowing us to be here today. Lord, thank you for the tiny taste of winter we've gotten in the last 24 hours. Uh, it's been a nice change. Uh, Lord, thank you for keeping us safe in the midst of all of that. We've got a, a lot of folks out sick today, uh, some with things like COVID and the norovirus and a whole bunch of other things that are floating around, and then some with much more serious health issues. Uh, Lord Pastor and, and Brother Edwards and Nick Bender, Lord, we've been keeping them on our prayer list for, for some time now. And we're asking you to bless them, to give them some answers, to heal them, um, whether by miracle or medicine, as, as soon as you see fit, Lord. And just thank you again for allowing us to be here. Thank you for this family. Bless the Sunday school classes and uh, ministries all over the building. Keep us safe while we are here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A uh, couple of quick announcements before we jump in. Judges chapter 4. There is a possibility I might finally finish Judges chapter 4. It's only been, you know, four plus weeks, but we're going to get there in just a moment. Um, we do need a little bit more help as far as um, nursery workers. Junior churches are, for the most part, fairly well cared for at this point. But, uh, ladies, if you are available to help out in the nursery, even as simply as once a month, we would de we would uh, we desperately need your help. We've got a whole bunch of new babies, and there are more on the way. 
Um, and unless you want us to just start unleashing them in the auditorium during service, I, I swear, I think if we do that just once on a Sunday morning, just let all of them, junior church and nursery, loose in here. Nursery would be full in like a heartbeat. Just throwing that out there. That's a possibility. We'll just pick one of these Sundays. Pastor's not here, so I can get yelled at on Monday. Um, Wednesday night, obviously, is Bible study to, uh uh, at 7 p.m. We'd love to have you out for that. We have soul winning on Fridays uh, with the teenagers. Um, some of you, if you are retired or have the ability to be here with us, we could use drivers. We've got a lot of young teenagers and having some more seasoned adult soul winners helping them out would be massively appreciated. We're going through uh, the town of Meriden this year. Last year, we actually knocked on almost every single door in Wallingford uh, with the teens on Friday nights. And our goal this year is to do as much of Meriden as possible. Now, Meriden's about 30 percent bigger so it might take us a little longer um, but we could use your help on that and as well as Saturdays at 10 o'clock and uh, for those of you that are involved in volleyball that may be up in the air it kind of depends on the snow and how that all falls Tuesday's high is 40 but they're still calling for six inches of snow so I don't know how that's all gonna work I'm just praying it ends at about nine o'clock in the morning that's perfect time for a snow day so uh judges chapter four we're gonna do what i'm hoping is the fastest recap we've done yet so judges chapter four verse one okay israel is evil after ehud dies verse two jabin first bad guy we're introduced to he's king of canaan also in verse 2, Sisera, second bad guy we're introduced to. He's the general. He's captain of the host. Okay? These guys are, are just bad. They take over Israel. We find out the uh, end of verse 3 for 20 years. They also have ancient tanks, 900 chariots of iron. Verse 4, we're introduced to Deborah. She's not only a judge, but she's a prophetess. Uh, in verse 5, we find out she has a favorite tree, which is a really random thing to have included in here, but I love that fact. She's got a favorite tree. Verse 6, we're introduced to Barak. He is just by the way, by all accounts, Barak is a completely random dude. You do realize that. He shows up nowhere else in your Bible outside of Judges chapter 4 and 5 and the one verse that he's mentioned in Hebrews. We know nothing else about Barak. It's just like God plucked this dude out of obscurity and said, here, lead my army. Okay. And he just shows up and that's what he does. Um, Deborah tells him in verse 6, God already told you to do this. Verse 7. Uh, no, I'm not going unless you go with me. And that goes into verse eight. And she's like, all right, let's go in verse nine. And she also tells him, you're going to win, but you're not going to be the hero, which is a weird thing to say. She actually, if you haven't already marked this, verse nine is where we get Deborah's, uh, really her only major prophecy that she is noted for in scripture. She's called a prophetess. So God is giving us the details needed to hold that title to her. And then uh, verse uh, 10, Barak calls up, his actually, in this case, his family, Zebulun and Naphtali, and gets 10,000 men. He's got an army. He and Deborah and their army, they go to the river, okay? Uh, verse 11, we're introduced to our third bad guy, Heber the Kenite. He is a traitor. Uh, he sells out the children of Israel, says, hey, they're down by the river. So Sisera, second bad guy, if you're following along with this rapid fire recap, second bad guy shows up with his army. Uh, and then verse 13, Sisera gets his 900 chariots, all of his other people, they go down to the river. Verse 14, Deborah uh, is like, hey, today's the day we're going to win. So he goes down to the river and gets ready to fight. Verse 15, this is right around where we left off last week. Verse 15, and the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. 
But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host unto, the, unto Heresheth of the Gentiles, and all the hosts of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword, and there was not a man left. And we actually also gave you the little extra from last week that going into Judges chapter 5, if your Bible's set up like mine, these should be like simultaneous pages here. Look at again uh, verse 4. Verse 4, Lord, when thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens and the heavens dropped, the clouds also dropped water, the mountains melted from before the Lord, even that Sinai from before the Lord God of Israel. And this is giving us the indication, remember, back in verse 1 or verse 2, when we're first introduced to Deborah and Barak, actually it's more like 6 and 7, Deborah tells Barak, God's going to win this fight. God's going to win this fight. Remember, the Lord delivered them. Chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, which we're going to get into a little bit today, that's the song of Deborah and Barak. It's basically their way of praising God and recapping what God did. Gives us a little bit more detail into the storyline. Now, the Bible is not you, it, this particular portion of the Bible is not necessarily unique in the fact that chapter 4 has some detail and chapter 5 has more detail. Have you ever read the creation story? Genesis chapter 1, God kind of goes through and talks about all of the basics of creation, but then it goes into Genesis chapter 2 when he finally starts to break down how that day when he created Adam and Eve actually broke down and went. Do you remember? It's like he, he kind of gave you the brief synopsis, and then he's like, oh, but this particular portion you need some extra info on. He goes back and kind of recaps. Are we okay? That's kind of what's happening here in chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 4... We're given some basic details. This is, again, this is like the, if, again, you've got to think of this like a screenplay, like a movie. This is, this is the synopsis. Chapter 5, they're recapping. All of this amazing stuff has happened, and this is, if you will, flashback scenes. Do you remember? It started to rain. The chariots got stuck in the mud. I, the, the only way that you can get that is literally verse 5, the mountains melted. I love the wording on that, the mountains melted. You realize the level of rain that had to have fallen to use the phrase, the mountains melted. That's a massive amount of rain. We've been uh, in my seventh and eighth grade uh, science class. It is the most boring science curriculum Abeka wrote. It's awful. We spend three chapters on weather and forecasting. Do you know how much 12 and 13 year olds care about the weather? If it's a snow day, that is the extent of it. That literally, and you remember when you were that age, but we're getting into like, you know, the National Weather Service and how, you know, radar, it's really boring. So I, I found some videos because little kids today are, are much more visually stimulated and that kind of stuff. And I found this really cool video from PBS on like extreme weather. And we've probably all seen documentaries like that. It's pretty cool. I don't know if you know this, I did some homework while I was looking at that. The record for most rain to ever fall in recorded history is eight inches of rain in eight hours. That's about that much rain. That's ridiculous. By the way, that was in India. Actually, where Matt and Vana are. Yay. Yeah, it was monsoon level rain, but that's, that's huge. By the way, the way it was phrased was, it seemed like the earth had melted. That's literally the phrase that PBS uses in that documentary. It seemed like the earth had melted. Giving you an idea, this was a massive amount of rain. 
So not only were Sisera and his host stuck, Barak and his army are fighting in all of that. Have you ever like run through the mud? It's not exactly the most fun experience in the history of ever. We used to, when we first moved here, we lived over in uh, Brentwood Village, the condo association over here in Wallingford. Well, there's a big pond back there. About a year after we moved in, they started posting no fishing signs. I'm pretty sure that was my fault um, because there were really big bass in there because nobody else fished in there. What am I going to do? I'm going to catch those. And we ate a few of them, by the way. I'm not sure if that was healthy or not, but I didn't tell mom where they came from. So, um, but I would go out there and I would, I mean, that is fairly decent sized pond. It was about three or four times the size of the Gerber's pond. So in order to cast out farther and I didn't have a canoe, I didn't have a boat. I would just kind of wade out into the water a little bit. Well, I was doing that one day. And next thing I know, my next step, I'm like up to my mid thighs in mud. And I panicked a little bit. I like threw my fishing rod back to the shore. And I, I, Barak and his army, they're fighting in this same mud that these chariots are stuck in. This would have been a, an ugly, nasty day. Just thought I'd throw that out there. We kind of talked about that last week, but didn't really get the whole spectrum. And now, verse 17 is where we're jumping into a new portion of this same account, something we haven't talked about. Sisera has run away. We get that in the end of verse 15. Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away. You know things are going bad when the guy in charge, and in this era, would have been the biggest, strongest, bravest warrior is running away. He's running away. Verse 17, we catch back up with him. Howbeit Sisera fled away in his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Okay, if you would, mark that at verse 17. Uh, Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Let's go back a little bit here and look at verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent unto the plain of Zaanim, which is by Kadesh, and they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, was gone up to Mount Tabor. Heber the Kenite, is that a singular or a plural in verse 11? That's a singular. That's one person, correct? He didn't have mixed up pronouns like people today. He wasn't a they, them. So how is verse 12, and they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, no, he'd separated himself from the Kenites. That's literally what verse 11 tells us. You ever thought that maybe that was Heber and his wife? I know. But how else is there a they there? Hmm. I'm giving bishology. I'm going to clarify. But that's a they. The Bible doesn't make mistakes. It's impossible because God cannot make mistakes. So they... We're only introduced to Heber. Sisera doesn't know where the enemy's at, so they gives us an indication he was not alone. Are we okay? I'm going real basic facts here. He's not alone. Well, who else would possibly be with him? Maybe his wife. And the fact that the Bible in verse 17 explicitly tells us that it's J.L., the wife of Heber the Kenite, because why would Sisera run away to them? Because he knows them, he knows he's safe with them, which does give us an indication she might have been part of that they. Are we okay? I know, I know. I just blew some minds there, and you're like, I'm ignoring this little punk from now on. But the Bible doesn't make mistakes. 
I'm just putting pieces together. It's like a big puzzle sometimes. And these pieces are really easy because they're in context. All right. So we're introduced to JL, who is possibly one of my favorite ladies in the whole Bible, even though she only shows up for like five or six verses in your entire Bible. I look at verse 17 again. Howbeit Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of JL, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. Of course there was. First off, he has basically, the Bible tells us he'd severed himself from the Kenites. He has denounced his own people. We okay? He's pitched his tent close to them, and he's turned in the enemy. There's definitely peace going on between these guys, because we're friends now, because friend of my enemy is also, you know, my friend, all that kind of fun stuff. Hey, we both hate the same people at this point, so let's be friends. There's peace. So that's why Cicero runs away here. He thinks he's safe. Key word is he thinks he's safe. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my lord, turn in to me, fear not. And when he had turned in unto her into the tent, she covered him with a mantle. And he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, pray thee a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and covered him. And again he said unto her, Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be when any man doth come and inquire of thee and say, Is there any man here that thou shalt say, No. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent and took a an hammer in her hand and went softly unto him and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. And I, I just love the end of verse 21, so he died. It's just like, boom. This is one of those just moments in a movie it's just like he's dead cut scene and we go back to something else all right and behold as Barak pursued Sisera Jael came out to meet him and said come uh I and I will show thee the man whom thou seekest and when he came into her tent behold Sisera lay dead and the nail was in his temples I I looked up a bunch of different commentaries and one of the phrases that kept being used in here was this that, again a lot of times in commentaries they use the term bible story but this account takes a very unexpected turn. You just see him and he's going in to, hey, this is probably a safe spot. The, we, we've got peace between them. These guys turned in the enemy. I know her. I, I know her family. I know her husband. This is probably a safe space. And all of a sudden, so he died. Just bam. And I love that. Absolutely love that. Now, here's an interesting thought. In the ancient world, women and men had different tents typically. Husbands and wives. By the way, that's not a foreign concept. Have you ever watched movies and TV shows from the 50s? Husband and wife had separate beds. That was actually a really common concept until fairly recently. So them having separate tents was fairly common. Let me show you some Bible to prove that. Go to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. And look at verse 67. Genesis 24, 67. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. We're given the idea that Sarah's got her own tent. We okay? Go, it should just be a few pages after this. Go to Genesis chapter 31, another example that's fairly close by and look at verse 33, Genesis 31, 33. And Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the two maidservants' tents, but he found them not. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered into Rachel's tent. So in that particular passage, we're given an indication that almost everybody kind of had their own tent. 
Now, if you've actually paid attention to or ever done any research on some of the more nomadic peoples of the Middle East, you'll see that a lot of times their tent is actually kind of like one huge, think circus tent type of a unit, but inside of each of those tents, it's actually separated like what you and I would consider bedrooms. There would be all these real heavy duty curtains and things blocking off different areas. That's kind of the concept that we're given and Sisera's not a fool. He didn't hide in Heber the Kenite's tent, did he? He hid in JL's tent. Nobody's going to expect him to be hiding in a lady's tent, especially a married lady. That, by the way, put a bit of impropriety on her. That's a big no-no. Even in the ancient world, if you were a guest, especially a male, who would you stay with? The man of the house, not his wife. Sister is not a moron. You don't get to be captain of the host of one of the largest armies in the area with some of the most advanced technology in the known world by being an idiot. He's hiding in possibly the best place he could think to hide. Wife of a friend who's at peace with his people. Wife of a friend because nobody's going to look there. And look at what he charges her with uh, in verse uh, 19. He asks for a drink of water because he's thirsty. She gives him milk to drink. That's an interesting little note there. When you're really tired or when your kids were really tired, glass of warm milk can knock, oh, it's gross, but it can knock you right out. It really can. And this guy has just gotten done with battle. He's been fighting all day. He has literally just run for his life. He is exhausted. She fills his belly with milk, of all things, which is a relatively difficult thing to digest, and it puts you in shutdown mode. How many of you, after Thanksgiving, there's that moment, whether you actually take the nap or not, you at least sit and do nothing for a little while because the sheer amount of food you just consumed, I need to die a little bit, okay? Uh, by the way, it's not the tryptophan in the turkey. There's actually more tryptophan in chicken. Just thought I'd throw that out there. It's the sheer amount of carbs we consume. You can't eat an entire family-sized serving of stuffing and not expect to fall asleep some point during that day. And that's also with, you know, the dozen, you know, Hawaiian's king bread rolls you ate or whatever, okay? So he's been running all day long, fighting for his life, literally. She loads him up on milk, and he falls asleep. And look at what he charges with her in verse 20. Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be when any man doth come and inquire of thee and say, Is there any man here? Thou shalt say, No. What does she do in verse 22? She goes out to meet Barak. Hey, dude's in here. She literally does the exact opposite. Culturally, this woman broke so many protocols, it's not even funny. Have you ever actually read through parts of the Old Testament law when it talks, when the Jews were instructed on how to treat guests? You're supposed to give them lodging and food and raiment and care for them as necessary. She murders her guest who is seeking asylum and help. There are actually, in parts of the Jewish culture, she's actually considered, the, the term would be a treacherous woman because she broke so many laws. Jewish laws, that is. This, this is a unique lady. You gotta give her some credit here. You also gotta realize she knows exactly what her husband did. She knows he sold out the people. 
what she's doing is going against her husband, which is also a massive breach in biblical protocol. Are we okay? This lady chose to do what was right in spite of what should be nearly insurmountable odds right there. This lady is pretty impressive. This lady is pretty incredible here. Um, and I love how gory this detail is, right, in this, this particular por portion of the account. Verse 21, J.L., Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent, okay? It, it, this isn't like your little ghetto tent spike from your, you know, little four-by-four four tent you got from Walmart. By the way, that's enough to do some serious damage jammed through your temples, okay? They're about that long. We're talking, these are, these are tents that... In some instances, some of these families' tents would have been at least surface area about as big as this room, large tents. We're not talking tiny little tent spike here. We're talking this thing was probably fairly gnarly. She takes a hammer and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it to the ground, okay? The human head is about seven inches across. Some of yours are a lot bigger, okay? Not saying the brain size is much bigger, but the, the head size is, okay? Just, but to go through the temples, it's, by the way, one of the fair, very few spots in your head, in your skull, where there's actually space. That's right in here. I get migraines often. Usually they tell you to put pressure right here, right here at the base. Why? Because there's pressure points, because there's actually a, a gap in bone, just this tiny, not a lot, right in here, okay? And you can get a pressure point right in there. She goes through and to fasten it to the ground. Oh, can you imagine, by the way, just, just how angry do you have to be to nail a dude's head to the ground and then make sure it stays? Don't mess with ladies, hey? I have five that live in my house, and I promise you, we have a lot of chocolate and ice cream because I'm afraid one of these days Molly's going to nail my head to the floor, okay? And it just kind of mildly terrifies me here. I just, I love this. Now, sorry, here's an interesting note to go along with this. In the ancient world, this is a fairly nomadic people within some reason. You realize that just a, a little over a century and a half prior to this, this entire group, the Kenites who traveled with the Israelites throughout their wilderness wanderings and all that stuff, nomadic people. Does anybody know who was in charge of setting up and tearing down tents in most nomadic tribes? The women. This lady knew what she was doing. And I just, the details in verse 21, it's, a, it's not a long verse, but I love it. Let's reread it one more time. Then J.L., Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent and took a hammer in her hand and went softly unto him. Can you just see this lady like creeping over? You do realize she's taking out the captain of the enemy's host. This dude's no slouch. Quite literally, he is likely the largest, strongest soldier in Jabin's army. She wakes him up and he catches her like this. She's dead. So she's making sure she doesn't get caught and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it to the ground, into the ground, for he was asleep and weary. And then it just ends with, so he died. So he died. By the way, chapter five, and we're gonna get into this in just a little bit, gives us a little bit more detail. At one point, at some point, after she nails his head to the ground, she cut his head off. So she's just making sure. Come on, you know you do that. The spider gets into your bathtub and you're like, oh, you kill it. 
you sco scoop it up with toilet paper, and then you flush it for good measure just to make sure. You know it's dead, you saw its guts, its legs are dismembered, but just in case, you know, like there's a zombie spider coming after you, you know? We do the same thing, so she's like, well, his brains are sticking out. You never know. Bam! And cuts his head off. I don't know how she did that. The Bible gives us no detail. And here's an odd note in here. The Bible doesn't give us any indication why she did this. None. Think about it. Go back, actually, and we, not physically, but go back in our mind when we were studying Ehud in chapter 3. You realize that there's no indication in Scripture that God told Ehud to assassinate Eglon. There's no indication. We're, we're given the idea that God did, in fact, call Ehud because he judged for how long? Does anybody remember? 80 years. 80 years. So God had to have put him in that position. But we don't really have any direct indication that God's like, you know what? Go murder that guy. That's the best way to do this job. Because if you actually look through most of the book of Judges, most of it is army on army. It's an, an uprising of the people. We okay? That's actually what happened through most of this account. So we don't actually know what was going through JL's mind there. But we can at least venture a tiny guess. She knew what was right. She knew her husband sold out his people. She knew this is the enemy of God. She had to break protocol, a lot of it. She had to disobey some of her own husband because he's the one that had allied himself with these people. You realize that there were potential for lifelong consequences for JL in this action. And she still did what was right. That's something we can all learn from. Because for most of us, when we come up against consequences, a lot of times we're willing to drop everything and change. She didn't. We're given zero indication throughout the rest of her lifetime and the rest of her history what happened to her. She's lauded by Deborah and Barak throughout chapter 5, and we're going to get there. Go with me to uh, verse 23. Verse 23. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. Um, in this particular thing, they had to go through, they were given the idea in, verse, in the previous verses here that Barak and his army, 10,000 men from Zebulun and Naphtali, killed off all of Sisera's host. Sisera himself is killed by Jael. Barak finds out about that from Jael herself, but they had to go a little further and actually kill Jabin. They had to take over and win their freedom back. Are we okay? Charles Spurgeon actually used this as an analogy. Charles Spurgeon's regularly considered the prince of preachers. If you've ever read any of Charles Spurgeon's sermons, they, they, were, they were absolutely eloquent. And the way he actually posed this as an analogy is that Sisera is a type or a picture of sin. And that Jabin is a picture of Satan himself. And in our own lives as Christians, we a lot of times are good at conquering our sin but we don't kill the sin. We defeat it for a time. You have an addiction. You have an issue. I beat that. In our own human flesh and own human will, we can overcome certain elements and aspects of sin. But unless we truly kill it and defeat it with the power of Christ, then it's going to keep coming back and fighting us and fighting us. 
we've got to actually go through, and just like Barak did, we have to follow through and use God's power to physically kill that and get rid of it once and for all. Otherwise, we're going to have the same thing that we do every Sunday. Oh, Lord, please forgive me for that. And the very next Sunday, we're back. Oh, Lord, please forgive me for that. I'm sorry I failed again. Why? Because we can conquer it temporarily as human beings. We do have that ability, but we will never kill it without the power of God. But most of us stop short of killing because we get comfortable in, I conquered it once, I can do it again. Do you want to keep fighting battle after battle after battle, or do you want to just hand it over to God and let him fight and win? That's what Barak had to do here, and he had to, he had to finish this victory. He had to go all the way. He had to win this. By the way, that's why JL's movement and what she did there is of such massive importance. Had she not killed Sisera that day, this story would not have ended the same way. You do realize that. It's also huge because it proves Deborah as a true prophetess. Go back with me to the beginning of the chapter here. Um, let's see in verse nine. And she said, this is Deborah, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor, for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. That prophecy comes true. By the way, we're also given an indication. You do realize we don't exactly know who wrote all of the book of Judges. It is very likely that it was a compilation. It was written by various people. But based on that prophecy and what we are given in verses uh, 20 and 21 with the exact details of what happened with JL and the, the, the nail in the forehead and all that fun stuff there, this was probably written by a firsthand account. This may have actually been written by Deborah herself. There's a, in fact, there's a couple dozen Jewish historians that believe that Deborah should be given credit for writing Judges chapter 4 and 5. Which is interesting because that would make her the only, possibly, I cannot prove anything there, possibly the only female author. But again, we're given some firsthand details and firsthand account there, which is interesting. Judges chapter 5, the song of Deborah and Barak. Um, if in throughout scripture, and we're going to actually look at this for just a moment as we finish up, God has, God does something miraculous, something huge, something amazing. And the children of Israel rejoice and proclaim glory to God through song. Right? If you actually pay attention to the Jewish culture today, when it comes to things like the feast of Passover and some of their other, uh, big feasts, there's a lot of music involved in it, a lot of singing. God included an entire book full of songs. It's called the book of Psalms. Okay, Now, we don't have the original sheet music to that, so we don't know exactly what some of those songs sounded like. And if you try to sing through Judges chapter 5, it is a, it is a bit of a lengthy song. Um, it's real wordy. And this tune would have been real funky. Um, just throwing that out there because it doesn't flow very well. Even if you try to read it in Hebrew, if you read through the, some of the Psalms in Hebrew, even if you don't understand Hebrew, you can understand that there's, there's some rhyming and there's some flow to it. And it, it logically makes sense as song lyrics. This does not. Hey, this is kind of those songs that like your little toddler makes up singing about what's happening throughout their day. Um, just, you know, literally singing as they do certain items. If your kids ever did anything like that, this kind of not giving Deborah and Barak, they're not toddlers, but it's kind of got that, that slight rambling to it. There's not a lot of uh, rhyme or meter to it. So as a song, this would have been a bit unique. Uh, there are parts of it that very clearly could have been repeated and sung pretty easily. Um, but others, it's just 
that this would have been somebody really going off script. Uh, Dad, our family was in vacation one year uh, down in North Carolina. We used to go to Roanoke Island Baptist Church, and this guy named Arvin, Arvin is since in heaven. He was super old when I was a kid, and not a joke. He was like in his 70s and 80s when I was a kid, so he's probably been in heaven for quite some time. Uh, Arvin was a boat captain. Uh, I was one of the deacons at the church there. I, in all the years we were there, I never saw Arvin wear a tie or socks uh, to church. He wore the, you know, boat shoes and khakis and a polo. And he got up one Sunday night and said, y'all pray for me. I'm going to sing a song that the Lord gave me yesterday. He had no lyrics. He had no pianist. He didn't have anything. He just sang this song. And the way some of you are staring at me right now is about how painful that song was, okay? <laughs> Bible says sing a song unto the Lord. And I'm not knocking that. But you can't tell me David didn't practice some of his songs. How else would he have calmed Saul's evil spirit? You, you gotta... Hmm. It, was, it was interesting. It was very unique. There are parts of this that as we read through it, you're like, that'd make a weird song lyric. Okay, so let's start. Verse 1. This is kind of giving us an idea of what's happening here. And then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, saying, Praise ye the Lord for the avenging of Israel, when the people willingly offered themselves. They start off with probably the most important thing here. God's willing to avenge us when we're willing to do whatever God commands. We've talked about this for weeks on end. We can give all of our battles to the Lord, but we willingly have to give all of our battles to the Lord for him to avenge us. Most of us try to fight our own battles. We love the idea of being able to praise the Lord for the amazing things he's done, but a lot of times we think we can handle our own problems and take care of it all of ourselves instead of giving it to the God of the universe that says he's got everything figured out. He's already been to the end. He knows how it ends, but we think we can take care of it ourselves. We have to be willing to give it up. Look at, uh, let's jump to Exodus chapter 15 for an idea of how these songs work throughout a bit of Israel's history. Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, there's two verses there in verse 20 and 21. Exodus 15, 20 and 21. And Miriam, the prophetess, the, son of Aaron, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. This is right after God had parted the Red Sea. Children of Israel cross on dry land. Uh, Pharaoh and his army start making their way across. God closes everything back up and kills off all of Pharaoh's army. And Miriam, Moses' sister, starts this song singing unto the Lord. And this song is pretty dark. Okay? They're singing praise to the Lord, triumphed gloriously. Why? Because they're all dead. So this is kind of like a 50-50 song here. Okay? Uh, if you jump with me, though, to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're actually going to jump forward in history a little bit here uh, as far as Jewish history. 1 Samuel chapter 18. And look at verse number 7. 1 Samuel 18 verse 7. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And it, just throwing this out here. And the women answered one another. So they're playing music. This You ever sung like a song that's sung as a round? Like this half sings this and then this half. 
like goes back and forth. That's kind of the concept that you're given here. The women answered one another as they played. Saul is slain his thousands, and then this happened, and David his ten thousands. How many people was David directly responsible for killing, by the way, on that particular day? One. One. Now, Israel and the army jumped in and defeated the Philistines that day. So collectively, since he started the victory, he's given credit for all of it. And this is one of the, if you read through this in all of the context, this is where Saul starts to realize, I don't like this kid. He ends up going on to like later try to kill him multiple times throughout his adult life here. But the, the idea of the children of Israel seeing a great victory of God and responding with a song, we should be doing the same thing. God does something big in our lives, and our very first thought should be praise the Lord. By the way, God does something small in our lives. We should be thinking praise the Lord. God lets something bad happen in our lives. What? Praise the Lord. God is always good. In the good times, in the bad times, God is always good. And our job as a Christian, and it, this is just three, three simple examples through Scripture that when God does something, our response as the children of God should be to sing his praises. By the way, that may not physically mean you get up here and sing a song. To sing someone's praises is also a phrase used to brag on someone to others. The best way to get people to pay attention to your faith, to your God, is to tell them how good God is. There's enough grumpy, angry, sad, depressed Christians in the world that most of the world's turned off by our group. Why? Because we're ticked off at everything. Can you believe what the governor did? Aren't you glad God's still good and I still have a house and I still have a job and he's been so good to me. I, I was able to do this this week and I got to... Why don't we brag on God instead of complaining about all the things that are happening? The, doesn't the song go, count your blessings? Name them one by one? Not, hey, here's the things I hate this week. That'd be a much worse song, would it not? As we get into chapter 5 next week in more detail, that song, the idea of count your blessings, that song, let that kind of sink through your head because that's really, that's what Deborah and Barak are doing here. And, by the way, one of the most amazing parts, Deborah and Barak, the Bible tells us directly in verse 1, then sang Deborah and Barak. This song was a duet but they ended up getting all the rest of the leaders of Israel to sing this song and shared it with the entire group of people. It changed their country because they bragged on God instead of complaining about what was happening. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day.